Okay, hello and welcome back to another edition of the Legal Geeks. I always love doing these with my fellow Legal Geek Josh, but this is a special one this week because this is a true flashback uh, episode for me going way back into the early days, both on the two movies we're going to talk today and our special guest. So as always with me is Josh, my blogging buddy for nine years now, right? Hey, Josh. It is nine glorious years. <laughs> then adding a little bit, like basically another decade onto that, we have with us a lawyer from California who actually went to law school with me way back in the, uh, right at the turn of the century, actually, back at UT. Hey, Chris, it's Chris Onstott. Hi, Chris, how are you? Hi, Jessica, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. And then if you double it, if we're literally now talking post 40 decades, the other lawyer with us, who's a criminal defense attorney in Minnesota, is actually my baby brother, Wyatt Arneson. Hi, Wyatt. Hi, Jess. Nice to see you again. <laughs> I actually have to apologize, I guess, to our viewing audience or something. I've been doing the legal geeks for nine years, and my brother's been an attorney that whole time, and he is a hardcore, bad sci-fi fan. I mean, he grew up, our dad introduced us, in fact, to one of the movies we're going to talk about tonight when we were kids so I don't know why we've never had Wyatt on before that is all my fault so Wyatt I'm sorry it's yeah, all right you didn't, you didn't even tell me he existed <laughs> <laughs> that's my dad wouldn't have told you that either it's always been Jess and the boys we're just kind of background noise we she hands us things to hold for her when she runs and visits and the grandparents are hugging her and things like that just so you know I talked with her I was I was really upset like how <laughs> I really am sort of an only child with just these two annoying pests around me. Yeah, I just met her son for the first time last weekend. <laughs> I'm the eldest in my family. She knows about the existence of my brother. So she's that, that's not, that, getting, that is getting pretty harsh now. Yeah. Sorry, why? Why it's used to it. That's why, you know, if you look at family pictures from when we were little, you would think I was an only child from those yeah, two. Absolutely. Wyatt literally invented photo bombing before it existed just to get make sure he could get in some of the family photos. It's pretty much just her and Weston. And then every now and then you'll see a chubby kid off in the distance. Eating a candy bar, eating his feelings. <laughs> it persists to this day. <laughs> yes, if we ever want to have a food edition, if we could somehow tie in the legal geeks to food and the Minnesota State Fair... Why could you like a 10 hour post for us? Look, I'll take a food. pro bono case. If you stole food to me, that's not theft. Believe me, <laughs> I will go down that ship with you. I will fight that with my dying breath. So, so Wyatt, uh, on knowing about food theft, uh, you should watch Love and Monsters. Oh, I've never even heard of that, but I'm going to watch it. It's so it came out last year. It's on Hulu and Amazon, and there is a legal issue with that. So, all right. Uh, it's a kaiju-esque movie and uh, lots of good stuff there. All right. Well, so that will maybe be the subject of a future blog uh, a podcast. But today we are here to talk about two movies that, again, actually I remember from my childhood. And I think that's actually true for all of us. Um, and they are tied to an upcoming movie that I'm very excited about. We are here to talk about two classics of some sort of 80s sci-fi, either the best of 80s sci-fi movies or the worst of 80s sci-fi movie. And we may be fighting about that today. I am talking about Flash Gordon 
and the first attempt at turning the amazing book Dune into a movie done by the amazing director, David Lynch, but very hit or miss. Um, and so everyone here has watched these movies before. I know my brother has a deep and passionate love for one of them. And in talking to Chris, it turns out he likes a lot of them too, or some of them, both of them. I forget, Chris, which ones? I, I think I think it's, it's one of them. The other okay. has some definite thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we can say Chris is one of us, judging by the Return of the Jedi frame poster on the wall. That's so, right. Just going to go out on a limb here. That, that poster is actually 1983. I got that as a little boy. Um, I was in my much older cousin's wedding, and that was my gift. And it went missing for like 35 years, and I helped my parents move out last year. And one of my little sisters came up and said, isn't this your poster? It like been in a crack oh. of a closet. Um, and so I, 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 I took it back and, and now it's up on my wall. Oh, <laughs> that is awesome. But, yeah, it's, that was an abandoned property uh, because it was inherently valuable. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, that might've been misplaced but it was definitely always yours. So. That's right. <laughs> It was always in his heart. So see, that's real cred there. So let's talk first about the movie that I watched only because of this podcast. And so help me God, we'll never watch it again. But my brother watches it every chance he can. We're going to talk Flash Gordon first. So um, and then let's just do a quick poll. Me, painful to watch. Wyatt loves Flash Gordon. Chris and Josh, are you in the love Flash Gordon or hate Flash Gordon camp? Love it. It's, yeah, I, I it's I think the first movie I really remember watching. I watched it at a kindergarten birthday party um, in the '80s and love it. All right, I, Josh, how about you? I love this film. That scene from Ted where you have uh, Mark Wahlberg with you know on the sky cycle. I couldn't <laughs> help but watch it and think, was this made for me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it speaks to Gen X males in a very special way. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's Seth MacFarlane generally. It's All right. So I have to ask Wyatt, because we actually grew up, my first experience with Flash Gordon is a picture book yep. from the Flash Gordon the movie, which I loved as a little girl, because again, the visuals are stunning. And especially for a little young girl, the costumes that the women had were gorgeous and elaborate. But Wyatt, I don't remember us ever seeing the movie. When did you first see Flash, the actual movie? I bet you I didn't see it till I was 15, 16 years old and it was on TV. But otherwise, yeah, I remember growing up with that picture book. Yeah. That's flipping through it and that it had a picture of Flash when he's laying in the forest with that weird spider thing that came up. And I mean, at four years old, it gave me nightmares. And then to this day, it gives me nightmares. <laughs> but I love, I mean, I love both these movies, but I love Flash Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, first of all, again, the visuals are amazing. Um, and, it, you know, there were a couple, we started talking even before we started recording. And so both Wyatt and Josh had caught actually a couple of parallels between or uh, connections between Dune and Flash Gordon, besides both being movies with fantastic visuals and sometimes painful things to watch. Why, what was, I thought you had a really cool one about a neat casting thing. Yeah, Max von Sydow, who plays Ming the Merciless, is also Liet Keynes in Dune. And unfortunately, the movie Dune doesn't do much with Liet Keynes or Keynes, however you say his name. The books really go into him and everything. Yeah. Um, because he's the impetus for changing Dune from a desert planet to rain and all that stuff. So, but Max Fonsino, you just can't go wrong 
I mean, any movie he's ever been in, I'd watch. Well, yes. And so everybody clearly wanted him to play tough guys. And Josh, I thought you had another neat connection too. Yeah, there's a connection between the producers. So uh, the producer for Flash Gordon is Dino De Laurentiis. And the producer for Dune is his daughter, Raffaella De Laurentiis. And of course, they were a big producing family. I mean, Dino, I think, is a big producer in Hollywood. And yeah, I think he did a lot in the 70s and 80s, right? He did. And his daughters had a huge uh, career as well and, and still alive and active. He, he passed. I don't remember when. Yeah. Um, unless I'm imagining that. But um, yeah, definitely. When I saw that, I was like, is that, are we doing a theme in, on purpose? So... But no, they were just active at the same time. And uh, I know his daughter had a movie uh, a couple years, three years after her dad. And, wow. And what, in researching the, the movie, the, because De Laurentiis, you know, my wife is always watching Food Network. That's Dino is the grandfather of Giada De Laurentiis. Oh, you realize and, that. And the Raffaella De Laurentiis has made like 17 or 18 appearances. On, on her Food Network show. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I would have never thought that. That's awesome. Man, all right. Well, impressive family. Do they use spices? <laughs> yes, they might. <laughs> Spice is very important. She does um, look young for her age. That's amazing. That's why. <laughs> that, of course, is referring to the anti-aging thing. That took me a second. Why? Um, okay, and then... Uh, one other kind of connection just to other sci-fi. Well, actually, no, I'm not going to go there yet. Before we get into talking about the actual movies, I also want to say, Chris, I know you had a funny story about Flash Gordon that I was hoping you would share here. Oh, I think Flash, oh, hold on. I think Chris is having some audio problems. Um, so we'll wait to see if he can get back on there. Um, but what I was going to say is, uh, of course, you know, there's all the talk about how so many of these sci-fi movies, you know, they have the similarities between them. Um, obviously, Star Wars, I thought some stuff from Flash Gordon reminded me, of course, of Star Wars. And yes, it was obviously trying to capitalize right on that. But yeah. I think this came up when we talked about, was it the very last Star Wars movie? Or was it the second last? I can't remember now, the ones with, you know, Kylo Ren. Um, but we talked, I think, about the fact that that Red Throne Room actually gave me very much Flash oh. Gordon kind of images so it's sort of funny how a flash sure. was off star wars it then seemed where's the one where he slices snape snope Snipe yeah that's like half. the second one of those or the first one the of those Jedi. yeah uh, it, it's funny so that that does come from the original artwork that was done by ralph mccrory okay. so they they did pull some of his work for inspiration for the, okay. the the sequel films, and I think they even did that for the throne for the uh, Rise of Skywalker. Okay, all right. Well, it was kind of funny because it very much gave me um, that well, sort of Flash Gordon. Well, Lucas wanted to direct a Flash Gordon movie, and he they wouldn't like he couldn't get the rights to it, so he did Star Wars. No oh. way. Yeah, so there's a connection there. So he definitely, it, it is space opera. And it's a, 
done properly is a lot of fun <laughs> and makes people happy and smile and you walk out. And How can you not smile and laugh when you watch Flash Gordon? That, I feel vindicated because for years I've been getting so much crap from my entire family that Flash Gordon's a horrible movie. So Josh, Chris, thank you because that's with the soundtrack from with uh, Queen yeah, and yes. Lord Volton shouting, dive. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than Just kids laughing, you don't live forever. All of it is perfect. But getting back to the similarities, I always picture the red guards that Prince Baron yes. is shooting at the end match like the emperor's guards to just the complete yes. garb is what I always saw. Uh, have either or any of you watched any of the 1930s serials, which, which are on Amazon Prime for free? No, I have no. not. I saw them when I was searching for this just to be able to pull it up, and I did see that. Uh, I, I was going to... Oh, what, Josh? Sorry. Uh, I watched, uh, if you go back maybe eight years, we actually talked about the first serials that were done. Well, there's a good common carrier I issue because uh, prior to the plane crash, the uh, it's either the pilot or flight attendant instructs everyone that there's a, their, their parachutes are underneath their seats. And we don't do that on airplanes. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, there were people who thought it was insane to have enough uh, lifeboats for everyone on a ship. Uh, like, but now we go like, of course we would. That's like not having seatbelts. But uh, yeah, we don't have parachutes because we don't want people jumping out of 737s uh, crossing the continent. Then it's a whole D.B. Cooper situation, which my son is obsessed with, mm -hmm. if you have that. Um, one more thing I was going to say, tying up this circle, speaking of, again, George Lucas and Flash Gordon, I was also, I've been doing some research on Frank Herbert, of course, the brilliant author of Dune. And they talked about when he went to see Star Wars, he basically said, yeah, that was just a ripoff of Dune. So Star Wars, Dune, Flash Gordon, it's all right there, right, Chris? Yeah, and and actually, we'll, we'll get to it when we start talking about Dune, but the people that were making Dune really thought that they had Star Wars for adults. Oh. They, they were under some delusion that this was going to become <laughs> like just as big as Star Wars. And if you look at the budgets for Dune, Dune cost 40 million in 19, when they were making in 1982, 83. Dang. That was equivalent to the amount that went into Return of the Jedi in that same time period. Wow. So that's amazing to think about. Well, it had a big cast, um, and obviously David Lynch is a, you know, I didn't know him until Wild at Heart, I think, was the first David Lynch movie I've seen, but obviously a very respected um, director. But we'll hold off on Doom for a minute. We're going to focus on Flash Gordon, so that way I can wipe Flash Gordon from my brain, ooh, just like the laser did with the professor, <laughs> although he outsmarted it. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Chris, before we get into the legal issues, I was uh, wondering if you could share your uh, your childhood story with Flash Gordon. Yeah, and and this may be apocryphal. I was not there, but <laughs> see, I, I grew up. I, I I I'm I'm LDS, and back in the early '80s, they would have video parties all the time, and one of the kind of church um, youth leaders was German. And so he didn't speak English as a first language. And, and so he goes to the video store and he rents what he thinks is Flash Gordon. <laughs> and it was not Flash Gordon. It was Flash Gordon. And it became a huge controversy. And, 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 and it was talked about for years afterwards. I was still too little at the time. Um, but, uh, big problem, that, that one letter makes a big difference. 
<laughs> huge difference. <laughs> Between those two, the difference is in the cover art. That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, Thor's wearing underwear, not Thor. Flash is basically Flash. wearing underwear. I mean, so really, if you look at it again, the boy, my the boys, my brothers used to laugh that when I would read my John Carter oh. Man of Mars series, they never read the books, but they just like to look at the cover art because Deja Thor's or Thuvia was always very scantily clad. So yeah, in some ways, at first glance, I could see it being hard to tell the difference. Well, well and if, if you think about the 80s, they never put the movies in, yeah. they never had the cover art. It just said like, you know, blockbuster oh, that's true. The video in the name. Yeah, yeah. just a white yeah. case or whatever, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought that was a pretty awesome story. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, so, okay, so let's see, uh, let's talk about a few of the legal issues putting aside all suspension of disbelief and also putting aside how did the NFL actually put money into this? Cause it really does seem like a, it's like, look, just football, rah, rah. That teaches you everything. Work like a team, knock people over. You can beat up bad guys more if you pretend you're rushing through them. Right. Yeah, said, it, he's getting killed. He is getting killed. All of a sudden they throw him that little metallic ball. <laughs> it's complete. This is where I'm kind of with you, Jessica. You really have to suspend your belief because he's a quarterback for the jets. Mm-hmm. And, and so as a quarterback for the Jets, he would have just kind of turtled up and, you know, <laughs> not back then. This is right after Joe Namath. That's why they found I me. Mean, come on. This That's was, why they picked the Jets. Because yeah. well, it's, it's like watching the 49ers. Yeah. I remember the 80s when we had a mm-hmm. great run. Now it's painful. so yeah so okay so um legal issues aside or uh, football issues aside sorry um what were some of the legal issues that people saw in here the one that really didn't get enough play so you put yourself in flash gordon and dale's position they're falsely imprisoned on this rocket yeah they don't want to go and all of a sudden they're blasting off to you know to ming the merciless's realm and all of a sudden they just get on board. They're just like fine with it. They're not <laughs> mad at the guy for, you know, forcing him to be in this rocket. I'm sitting there going, I would have at least been like the first hour of the movie. I'd still be kind of mad because. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first guy he tried to kidnap on there, his, you know, the, the first aid. guy who runs up and then comes back. <laughs> yeah. It just shows you how great Flash is. And he's like, look, even though I've been kidnapped, I'm going to make the best of this bad situation. He's like, hey, life hands you lemons. You make lemonade. They're going to toss me a football-shaped object. They're all going to get down in a huddle, and then I'm going to win. I'm going to think telepathically about this woman who's kind of sexually assaulting me, but apparently I'm sort of getting turned on by it as I'm also talking to Dale telepathically. So that that actress uh, in 1999 had her breasts insured for an excess of a quarter of a million dollars, and my firm focuses on insurance coverage. Yes. I, I don't know what the underwriting file on that would look like. I don't know how they figured out the value. <laughs> I, that, I'm guessing that was Lloyd's of London and now I have to inject some realty here with insurance. My boyfriend, of course, longtime boyfriend uh, is a director of national accounts underwriting for a uh, national insurance company. So we actually talk about underwriting a lot. It's actually very close to litigation. Um, he says Lloyd's of London will insure anything. They're always the ones who are insuring. like, I think he, they insure like Elle McPherson's body because she was known as the body. They do it all for stunts. So serious underwriters don't pay any attention to that stuff. But um, but yeah, she was pretty fabulous. Although again, well, 
Yeah, she, I mean, she was, I guess, kind of kidnapping Flash at various times, although he seemed, and well, again- she saved his life at the one point right. to kidnap him. So at that point, it's more of a rescue. It's a give or take, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, I, she did keep me from getting executed. So. Yeah. Here's, here's the question that I had, just getting into legal issues. When, when the princess leaves Flash with, with, with the prince and- um, what is it, Arborea? Baron, yeah. It, yeah, Baron. It is, is that a bailment? I mean, what, how do we look at Take that care issue? of him, yeah. I mean, he leaves in the care of this person, he immediately cages him and puts him in some swamp. <laughs> well, she gives him the terms because she's sleeping with everyone to get Flash out of there. She's like, you know, and she tells him, look, if he dies, I'm not going to have sex with you again. You know, I mean, she has high standards. Like, just keep him alive <laughs> and then do whatever you want. <laughs> And Prince Baron is like, I don't get my name, Prince Baron. Whoever came up with that, it's very confusing. But he's gonna, I'm gonna fake an escape, and then we'll see. And that's that James Bond, right? Correct. Like, that's Timothy Dalton. Yeah. Best Bond in my. Well, he is the best looking character in the movie. He is the only part of the movie that I would stop and pay attention when he was on. He is only the best looking. Um, but yeah, sorry, Josh. What were you saying? I was saying that Timothy Dalton was the best James Bond. Yes. Well, oh, we'll have to have a look at that. Wyatt's also a huge Bond freak, and I don't do Bond at all. So sometime maybe we'll have to do one on why can do one with you where you guys can argue. There's Bond. no legal issues with that. He has a license to kill <laughs> do whatever he wants. And yeah. why did you hide Wyatt's existence from me? Were you afraid we would become buddies? I was. I think now I'm seriously regretting this now. I didn't get to meet grandma until right before she died, but she did tell me that in the five minutes she knew me, I was her favorite. And <laughs> just kept me under, I, she read that Children of the Attic or whatever that, what, what was that? Oh, the, the B.C. Book? Andrews Flowers in the Attic. Oh, yeah. I need well, to talk to somebody kid, about that. He'd tell me about them, how they kept the kids in the attic and made them eat arsenic. I mean, I was terrified. We'd go someplace, there'd be powdered sugar on a cookie and I would not eat it. And I love cookies. Be fair, that was for his own health. <laughs> oh my God, B.C. Andrews. I do need to find someone to talk about those books. Those traumatize me the way that creepy spiders, uh, jungle spider terrifies you. Anyway, so back to legal issues. Josh, how about, I know you actually spotted a ton. Um, you are the issue spotter extraordinaire. What was one or two that you saw? My gift. So Ming declares war on all of Earth. True. You, there is no declaration. He's bored. And he wants to play with something before annihilation. And <laughs> we haven't dealt with a world war like that, where the entire planet is being attacked by an outside force. So when you look at how allies responded uh, in World War I or World War II, World War I is probably the better example because their, their mindset was if we have all these alliances, that'll be the deterrent. And instead, when one got attacked, it triggered a world war instead. So good job. Uh, there, each country would have its own process for doing a declaration of war in response, or if there are joint defense agreements, like what we have in NATO or, or in Southeast Asia, where, or the Japanese US uh, you know, uh, treaty on mutual defense, all of those would get triggered at once. And that is terrifying uh, if we ever had to have anything like that happen. On the bright side, it's going like, well, at least there's something in place. 
Like, but like normally you wouldn't have to go, we're scrambling everything. Yeah. Now, now on the flip side, how do you fight a planet coming at you? Yeah. So that, that can control weather. So the, well, then you have to get uh, Bruce Willis to go up there and plant a bomb on it and explode it. And then that Bill will save Paxton, everything. Bill Paxton will pull us all together. And this <laughs> will be our independence day. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> what, what I didn't understand is, one, it, it, it was unclear because I guess his big plan seems really complicated to trigger all these other natural disasters. Yeah. To, like to destroy the it seems like kind of the laser beam for Dr. You know, sharks with laser beams on their head and in <laughs> Austin Powers. Um, but the mad scientist Zarkov, he's the only one that really knows what's going on. And his plan seems to be flawed. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's got some lackey that doesn't want to go with him. And then just by happenstance, there's a plane crash. Without the plane crash, is he just going up there by himself? I mean, it, well, he can't even operate the controls just by himself. That's why he needed his lackey. So he built the deal based on, but that gets back to the kidnapping. You know, just about everything, there's the necessity defense. You could argue, like, look, I kidnapped him, but that's Ming the Merciless. If this is your first encounter with Ming, you know, I gotta lay down some character witnesses for this guy. He's dead now, but he was very, very bad. Is he? Now, with that, uh, when the plane crash happens, the the flying asteroid fireball that takes out the plane, you can see Ming's face in it. Yeah. So how is that planet wide with stuff like that happening? Well, it just took out the two the two pilots disappear, the pilot and co-pilot when he comes at him. See, now this is where I feel like we're giving Flash Gordon more thought than it deserves. Now, let's think about this, because that was definitely <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> But I really don't feel like there was a bigger meaning behind any of that. <laughs> now, on the issue of a common carrier, like this is well outside the norm of what a common carrier can deal with. Now, we, I've done posts about airplane crashes. Uh, There's a fun one from Ultra Q, which dealt with a blizzard hitting Tokyo and causing planes to freeze in the middle of summer and crash. Mm. This is kind of comparable. Like this is sure they have the utmost duty of care to their passengers, but when it's the planet getting attacked and, and you have the government saying like, don't worry about the solar eclipse that no one saw coming. Like that, <laughs> sure, that's, the, that's the government's nice way of saying, don't lose it or else everyone's gonna go outside and start screaming. Yeah. Um, no, kind of understandable, kind mm -hmm. of understandable. Um, Another, obviously, well, I just have to get into this for a minute. One of my problems, and I think I've talked about it here, one of my problems with being a sci-fi fan, and especially classic sci-fi, because I actually did years ago read one of the original Flash Gordon books back from whenever they were written. Um, and it's the same problem I had with John Carter, even Robert Heinlein, who tries to be better. But of course, as you know, the women in these things, even when they're given sort of leadership roles, is still like, what men were considering advanced in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s. I mean, Frank Herbert kind of makes it up by the end of Dune with Chapter House Dune, which is why I can kind of roll with that. Um, but obviously here, you know, Dale and the whole kind of, she can be strong for a minute, but then, yeah, and then she goes weak and oh, flash. I will say one thing that I thought was really funny that was actually more progressive. This is totally not a legal issue, but it was more progressive than one of the Jurassic World movies when she had uh, changed into the slave outfit um, and was escaped 
escaping, she actually had her shoes off and then she would put her shoes down oh. to like kick one of the red guards butts. Um, then she would pick her shoes up and then run to the next thing and put the shoes down and kick the butt. And at one point she had the gun, she actually threw the gun on the ground and then ran off with her shoes. I really <laughs> want to know what was going to happen with the shoes. So on the one hand, that's insane, but I also remember Bryce Dallas Howard in one of the Jurassic World movies got grief for running from dinosaurs in high heels the whole time. So I'm like, at least even in 1980, they're like, you know what? If women are like trying to do these things, um, let's not make them wear their heels. But obviously there was a lot of like the whole kind of forced sex trafficking basically. Um, and kind of even suggesting like you should roofie yourself here or make the whole process much better. So all of so he, that is uh, very creepy. He takes some sort of energy drink before he goes in there. <laughs> I'm just guessing you might want something if he's doing a Red Bull or whatever the Mongo equivalent is to Red Bull. Oh. I watched this. I watched Flash with my my eleven year old daughter and my six year old son, and my six year old son just enthralled. <laughs> Could not take his eyes off anything. He was just like just. But my eleven year old, the point that you made, she's like, get the gun. Yeah. What are you doing with your shoes? <laughs> okay, she picked up on that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, I really just think that makes sense. Like, I really do feel peak flash age is six or seven. And then after that, you're just like, no, I need more sophisticated fare. <laughs> Unless you're Wyatt. <laughs> better and better every time. It's like fine wine. <laughs> well, again, your child, your son just had a wonderful, you know, bonding experience with you. And then your daughter might need therapy. Uh, so, <laughs> but, but on that note, you have the creepy side of it's like forced marriage mm -hmm. and Ming can uh, dispense with her. Uh, the wedding yeah. vows were very funny. That actually yeah. was, I'm like, if they were playing this for humor, that part's actually hysterical. They, they also had the like, you know, make sure she's prepared for his pleasure or something. Yes. Super creepy. Yes. Uh, get the bear mace type, type scene. Yes. And all of, there, there's no way any of that's legal. They no. just, I mean, let's put it oh. out there. Not also either. gross there and are no laws where that would at least where, where at least the legal. ending makes up for it when even hours ahead of time when he, he talks to um flash gordon at the the birdman's lair he's like even if i stop it now there's been so many volcanoes and stuff that the humans you knew you won't even recognize yeah and he kills him and it's averted it's down to zero <laughs> like, you know i mean he kills him and then the little orb flies up and says, you did it, you saved Earth. And he goes, yes. Yeah, so, did so, we? So what is Earth looking like? Because I'm guessing the moon got real. Zero <laughs> was the moon crashing. We, we bounced back well. I mean, sure, the, the pandemics made people question that. But when you look at look like how we responded to, say, 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, or, you know, you might have the collective... Uh, trauma of like what you know the challenger disaster like yeah everyone's you know it, affected by it but we bounce back let's just but say if the earth is yes this exactly like i think those of us in wisconsin are fine you guys were totally wiped out by the the tides oh. and the moon but at least here in wisconsin minnesota we might have made it through why and you can tell when they made it they were planning on a sequel with the end question mark when yes. like who stole the ring you know and 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 on that on that because I, I remember Sam Jones, you know, as, as a kid going, okay, so what else has he been in? And the answer is not much. <laughs> and apparently he had some big rift with Dino De Laurentiis. 
during the filming of this show. And, and it, that's why there's no sequel is because he didn't want to do it. He left before post-production. Some of his lines are dubbed by some unknown actor. Wow. They also, they dubbed his entire voice because they didn't like Sam uh, Jones's voice. Oh. So they, another actor voices Flash. That's like Scarlett Johansson coming in for her. Um, but why, what were you going to say something about? He was just in something, right? Weren't well, you Ted 2 or Ted 1, Ted, because that's, that's right. right. You know, that's that Ted. He does right. the wedding in one of them or whatever. They bring it okay. up. Like, yeah, that's, it's our age group of every guy that saw that. Like, we love Flash Gordon. I mean, he's just, he's in a good mood. You hand him something football shaped and there's nothing he can't do. Like, if you that bring everyone together. Football shaped deal, he would have been like this. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> All right. And I do have to say, um, this is, I was going to mention this earlier. We haven't really tied in Star Trek, although Star Trek has a connection to, to uh, Dune, which I'd forgotten about. But it did strike me when, when uh, Flash Gordon is, he's no longer on his sky scooter thing, but I think he's actually, he's going to crash that plane into the lightning field kind of thing. And the Birdman is trying to get him to leave. And he says, no, okay. this is a rational, uh, pardon? Okay. Vulcan, sorry. Yeah. Um, he says, like, no, this is a rational decision. One person. One life ex- to save millions or whatever. Yes. He when says it's it- a Voltan who sounds like a Vulcan. Okay. Yes. And this was actually two years before Wrath of Khan, right? Because was it in Wrath of Khan? Isn't it where Spock says that? Yeah. So I was yeah. like, dang, Flash Gordon was ahead of the curve there. Spock did it second and gets, like, all the credit for it. I think if you look. Every movie that's been made post-1980 has ripped off Flash Gordon <laughs> one way or another. I wouldn't doubt if all those, you know, rom-coms, go back and watch those even now, you'd be like, that Matthew McConaughey line, isn't that? That's that, that, that Flash's mouth. Uh, Ajax was the name of the... Oh, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, okay. So I feel like we've spent more time on Flash Gordon than is really needed. So we do have to turn to another movie um, that, again, Wyatt and I, this is my, I guess, and it would have been his too, since Wyatt didn't do anything back then that I didn't know about. Our first movie in the drive-thru was Dad took us to see this Dune. My dad, and that's where I got my love of sci-fi. That's where Wyatt got his, and also bad taste. My dad doesn't have the best taste in these things. Um, But we should have an old man talking about what they are the best movies podcast that'd be hysterical he would just tell everybody to watch the vikings over and over um anyway he took us to see this the original dune in the drive-thru and this is back in minnesota back in the 80s back when you had to hang the little like transmittal thing on the window so i mainly just remember a car full of mosquitoes like it's literally the worst way to watch a movie yeah i mean you were in the front seat That is true. Um, but I remember that. And then I just remember these giant worms, right? Um, but of course, yeah, and at the time did not know that it was the great respected David Lynch, um, a fantastic uh, cast, some of the usual like Kyle McLaughlin, Kyle McLaughlin, who was in a lot of David Lynch stuff. Patrick Stewart, of course, plays a great Gurney Halleck, which I'd forgotten. Um, and that's, of course, a huge Star Trek connection. Um, why you had a connection, and I forget what it was well, for Duncan Richard Idaho. Jordan. Yeah, Richard Jordan, the actor who plays Duncan, his grandfather is Learned Hand. <gasps> 
That's really? right. A legal connection. Yeah. By the way, for wow. those of us, Judge Learned Hand is a famous judge, um, very well respected. And also, if you want to talk about fate, um, I would love to go back if we could know what his parents are. But I'm assuming they're like, this, this boy's going to be a judge. So yeah, super cool connection, not so much to our sci-fi world, but to our um, legal world here. Um, He's in Logan's run. So if you want to talk sci-fi right. world standard, Logan's run. Yeah, and I do like Richard Jordan. Um, so I have to say this movie, and again, I am a person, I love the books. I have been reading the books since eighth grade, all six of the original ones over and over. I'm in the course of reading them again now, and I've told people, and I need to do a blog post on this. In some ways, those books speak more to the time we're in right now than they have at any time over the past 30 something years that I've been reading them. Um, but anyway, so I love the books. I'm very excited for the movie coming out, which is part of why we're talking about Dune today, but hadn't gone back to see the movie, the original Dune movie since 1984, I guess, when it came out. And it's one of those, I have to say, and again, I guess it's that, you know, childhood connection. I mean, I love Dune the books and the movie is so interesting because parts of the movie are literally word for word from the books. And then, of course, other parts of the movie. And I get it. It's a very complicated story to tell. And so I get why they had to take artistic license. Um, and so other parts of it. Uh, are completely different. And I will say the Baron Harkonnen, in the books, they make him grisly and awful, but somehow visually here, that's what gives me nightmares. What they do and with these heart pumps, which are not in the book and all that sort of stuff, is, and with the boils on his face, that I think gives me nightmares now, just from watching it this weekend. Well, and all that stuff from Didi Prime looks like those old, like the 30s, 40s, 50s, those sci-fi movies that you saw back there, you know what I mean? Like the very industrial and all that, yeah. you know what I mean? It looks like a horrendous place to live. You Which know, it's supposed dirty, to be, but yeah, but they made it even yeah. grosser. Yeah. Yeah. But because I'm similar to you. I read the book in about eighth grade, but then haven't read it again until now I'm rereading it. But that movie's on TV all the time and I own it. And every time it pops up, I don't <laughs> care what I'm doing, where I'm at. I watch it and I'm blown away again because I think it's one of the pinnacles of creation at this time too. Oh, the emperor has to get on that circle deal and they're going around in circles. I, I would think that would just make you sicker as you're spinning around. Like, why do you need to spin when you're shooting the lasers? But beautiful. Chris, what are you saying? I got to tell you, just watching it yesterday, um, re refreshing. I, the thing that just kept coming back to me is I watched them both in succession. And watching Dune, I'm sorry, it's unintentionally hilarious <laughs> all the time. Flash, I Flash Gordon, I think, is played for laughs. I think they're in on the joke. Yeah. I'm not convinced that Dune was at all. Oh, no. Oh. David Lynch does not do it for jokes. And, and it is so funny. There are so many parts that my kids were just dying laughing. Wow. You know? Like, what parts? I mean, because I guess I know the book so much. I can't. I, the books, I'm able to see the movie differently because I'm layering the books on it. So I don't know what it's like to somebody who I, doesn't know the books. I've, I've never watched. I've never read the books. Okay. I felt like I was studying for like a law school exam watching this movie. <laughs> I was just, okay, so who is this? I had to go online to try to figure out who people were. And then like at one point he says something like, now I truly control the worm. And both of my daughters are just dying. <laughs> I mean, this is just... <laughs> I can see that and I can see it being very confusing without knowing the book because oh. they lost there's so many characters and you don't you don't get 
what Thufer is or Gurney or Duncan or any like the backstory. So I, because I'm the same as Jess, you know, and I don't, I saw that once in the back of the car, but then watched it so many times and it read the book and stuff. So I, I do see that because I know whenever I have it on, if any of my family's around, there's a lot of snide little comments <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, nobody stuck around when I said, I'm going to watch this. You guys want to stick around? Everybody peeled out of it. Josh, how about you? Where to begin? I remember seeing this film when it came out with the family at the old mill in Los Altos. You know, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. You know, I was what, 11 or 12 when it came out? No, excuse me, 10. No, younger, yeah. 10. And, you know, it's a good rewatching it the other night. It's like, eh. You know, I mean, there's, it was a valiant effort for the 80s. Uh, I mean, there's Sting. I mean, hello. Yeah. I, that, Which, uh, right there. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, the 80s synthesized music. I mean, nothing like Queen, but the things that they do with it. You know, having the princess do the opening, also kind of weird. Well, Weird but sort of smart. I understand yeah. why they had to do it to try to explain some, some of, of what's going on. Yeah. It's their answer to the opening crawl. Yeah. And, and being able to have some background for what's happening. The, uh, you know, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, you know, was like too old for the role because it, it yes. was all supposed to be like 15. Yes. Yeah. And in the upcoming film, you know, they have an age appropriate actor. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to play, uh, you know, Paul. So that will be fun to see. Uh, but I mean, there, there are legal issues in it. Uh, and uh, again, it's just comparing it to what I remember and the way, what I enjoyed about it for like the sweeping epic. Now this was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It won one, I think for costume. Yeah. And uh, it's like, it was a sweeping big, valiant effort, not easy to, to do. Uh, no, I mean, again, and looking back, my kids always look at this old stuff, you know, and laugh just because now they're so used to the, all the sophisticated CGI. But again, I look at this as so pr impressed at the production quality and these sets and these whole worlds well, that they create. A little bit, but Chris, didn't you say that this, how much, how much did this one cost? Didn't you this say that? For 40 million. This was more or on par with Return of the Jedi. So after Return of the, after two Star Wars movies had knocked it out of the park, the third where there's probably more money than any other movie they ever needed or they ever wanted, this is right on par with it. And the thing that when I was watching it that was just really kind of stunning to me is I think even people, big fans of this movie have to say that if you watch Return of the Jedi or Empire Strikes Back and you watch this, there's just no comparison. I mean, the water skiing on the yeah. sandworms and, you know, it's just, it's so much better production in those other Star Wars movies. Because that's yeah. what I was going to say too is, didn't, I mean, the first Star Wars came out like in 77. Yeah. Right. And even that, you know, like, I don't, I love this dude. I love it. But every <laughs> flying deal, the worms, I mean, it's hokey. You can totally, I mean, it's, it's the side, the, the special effects are not, you, know, you look at that, like I get, I get our kids watching it because they can't put it into context. They yes. just think it's an old movie, it's that good. And you say, well, you know, this was after Star Wars. And then to find out it costs the same amount as Return of the Jedi. And you're like, 
where did that money go with those shields? Because if that team oh. still trying to keep them off, you know, that, <laughs> that was it. Or the worms that, I mean, it, yeah, it's not the use of miniatures that they did in Star Wars, Empire, and Return of the Jedi is just amazing, or puppets, or any of that stuff, versus the the guild navigator, the one guy with the drive back. Like, what's the point of just one guy? There's a huge, like, ocean of green slime down there, and just one guy, and he just kind of rips his way back. He's like, I'm just going to get this one spot. So I, where I think the budget went was on the set design. That's, yeah, that's what I was referring to. The set design, you're right. The special I effects see. are horrendous. The set design is freaking gorgeous. Yeah, Caladan, it did look like all the stuff that they shot on Caladan, like the wood and everything, and then the emperor, all the palaces, and even even those, the sieges with the rock and stuff, I'm sure it's yeah. not easy to get that sort of stuff, but... Yeah. By the way, just looking really quickly to Google their box office, given that they made about the same investment for both, Dune didn't even make back its investment. It made maybe $38 million, whereas Return of the Jedi, of course, who knows how long this is counting for. Um, hopefully, it's just from that time, $475 million. That must have just been for that time. So yeah, one of them was a much better investment than the other. Yeah. I looked, um, let's see if I can find it. Um, the reception was, let's say, not great. Um, this is Gene Siskel. He said, uh, it, it's and this is what he says. I'm not quite sure I agree with it. It's physically ugly. It contains at least a dozen gory gross-out scenes. Some of its special effects are cheap, surprisingly cheap, because the film cost reportedly 40 to 50 or 45 million. And its story is confusing beyond belief. In case I haven't made myself clear, I hated watching this film. <laughs> Which is why this worked better as a miniseries in 2000. Yeah. And because they could, they had the time. Yeah. It's like, if this is supposed to take place over a couple years. Well, like 10. Okay. So there was a comment in the movie about, with the princess narrating about like two standard years. Well, if it's 10, that makes more sense for playing uh again, legal issue of are they freedom fighters or are they terrorists? You know, like where, where they, do they fall in on the law of war? Well, because even that gets tricky because Paul is still alive and the rightful thief is his. So right. at that point, like you're saying, freedom fighters versus terrorists, even though the emperor has decreed that the Harkonnens are in charge of it again, technically Paul is alive and it's his thief to do what he wants. So let's break this down. So one comment and then let's, jump into the true legal analysis here. I don't know if the upcoming film is gonna be like a trilogy or two parts to get it all in, or one just massive movie. And it's, like, it's the first half of the book is what I heard. They're just doing the first half of Dune. This movie will just, so if they do the, the same deal, it'll be two movies to do what that one did in one movie. But I don't know what that breaking point is then. That's I'm like, it's going to be hard. I mean, at least Empire Strikes Back, they could kind of end on this cliffhanger bad spot because people were already mega invested because of Star Wars. I've heard that it's two parts too, but I'm like, and I'll stick around for the second part, but I don't know how well, they'll probably have to fabricate, you break it well. Fabricate a bit of a cliffhanger. Maybe like when he takes the water of life or something, it's not about halfway, you know, I mean, yeah. I don't know. They could make the battle longer for, you know, the fall for, of the House of Atreides. And, no, that's actually and, pretty lame and pretty early, though. And in the books, the, the, both the battles are so short. All the yeah. battles, that's, that's the whole deal that, that Lynch focused on all the fighting and stuff, because that's what sci-fi movies are. You right. know, the books are him going with the Fremen, learning their ways, Liet Kynes, I mean, all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know what they'll do. 
the so, weirdy way, I was annoyed by this whole sound machine yeah, thing. That was a total cry. invention for the movies that I don't like at all. Weirding module is not in the movies at or not in the book at all. The weirding no. way, which is just a really good way of fighting is, but this special sound tech, that was right. a complete invention that I actually and, thought I didn't give sympathy for. Other know, things I got why they had to change. You know that Ralph Macchio read that book and he knows the weirding way is just correct. Yes. <laughs> So now that we've addressed that, let's yes. down. Are they freedom fighters? What what's tech happening here? So and and this gets the you know, part of the law gets thrown out the window here, but we we still have to try to uh, use what we know because that's what the law is. With like we're going to try to have a civil society. So Atreides is in charge. There's a conspiracy against them. Paul and Jessica get tossed out into the desert and join the tribe. Like, break. So what do we have when he you know, does the, we'll fight like demons and I'm gonna teach you all of the, these advanced combat techniques because I, I still know how to make the sound weapon. With that, it's like, okay, from the Harkonnen point of view, these guys are terrorists because they're yeah. doing guerrilla war. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they've never thought of the Fremen as a legitimate nation state. Correct. From the Fremen's point of view of, this is our land, jerk, and we're taking it back. You don't get to exploit us. And from Paul's point of view, it's like, we were here we were going to uh, rule or lead justly because we weren't about, you know, it was people above the spice. Again, Lido, damn the spice. And it's like, oh, I kind of like this guy, like that, that reaction. So I, I do think it's a war for liberation that they're fighting and they're doing it guerrilla style. So I do think they're, they're justified. And the Harkonians are definitely in the aggressor camp and everything that the uh, uh, emperor has done has been, uh, it's, it's palace intrigue. Uh, you know, it's like, but we'll, we'll just go do genocide at this point because we want the spice to flow. That's but see, I don't think it is a war for liberation. I think the Fremen, they sort of accept Paul Mahdib as their leader, but really still, they have basically, by the end of the books anyway, and I can't recall now, it is hard for me even to separate out what was in the book versus a movie. Basically, the idea is, is that Paul leads him, but he is reclaiming his fiefdom is a whole idea. He is a duke. He has the signet ring. Remember, because that's what the Baron wanted so badly. The only reason the Harkonnens got to take over again, because even the emperor still has to kind of play by the rules because there's that lands rat all i mean it's just like any king right i mean it's exactly the feudal thing the cute the king was only able to rule so long as all the dukes were cool with it so it's still that same sort of idea which is why he'd had to go behind and secretly support the harkonnen so i really feel like it was um Paul reclaiming the uh, the planet on behalf of House of Treaties. It was never the Fremen actually getting full liberation. They, but they sort they, of accepted him and worked with him because of this whole religious stuff that they don't he's get. He's their Messiah. So, right. I mean, once they made him a god and determined that they took him into his tribe and made him a Fremen, and he kind of left the Atreides and adopted the Fremen mantle too. You know, he went 
you know, native. But the I idea know. always is, though, that he is, and cool. even his son then, who is actually half uh, Fremen, um, and that gets into the it is always House Atreides. It is yeah. always that first. All the way back to Agamemnon. Yep. One of the things that is the common, th we talked about common thread through both of these movies, they're both kind of Messiah-based movies. Yeah. In fact, the queen line, he'll save every one of us, you know. <laughs> um, you know, they're, 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 they're both very, you know, here's our savior. Here's the person that's going to lead us, you know, at, lead us to prosperity or out, out of danger. Combine all the Fremen tribes, not just one one siege or one tribe. He combines all the Fremen to fight against the Harkonnens as a unit. The difference is, Paul is moody and depressed the whole time he does it, while Flash is having the time of his life. <laughs> Flash is like, I got the girl. Everybody, let's get along. Yeah, Paul's tortured. Yeah, Paul's tortured, and uh, I ending up with Sean Young isn't necessarily a good thing. Uh, <clears throat> hey. Well, we can get into a whole separate thing about Sean Young. She sort of has her problems, but I also feel like she was very much a victim of that Hollywood 80s difficult okay. women oh, were basically yeah. slandered in a lot of ways. Plus, she had to deal with James Wood, and we all know who's a crazy one in that relationship. True, um, but I, I've heard former co-stars with her say, like, yeah, we're not in touch. Anymore. Oh, all right. Well, see, there is that. So then you have that sort of thing. Um, so I will say the legal question that I am most fascinated by, because again, you also still have, once again, like the whole sex trafficking. I love how all sci-fi ends up with women being like basically sex slaves kind of thing. But of course, because Lady Jessica was actually bought, she's a bound concub concubine, which is another word for slave, um, who just happens to fall in love with her master, which is again, I love some of the male writing in some of these things I roll my eyes at, but that's okay, because I do love Lady Jessica. But this is not an area since, you know, Wyatt, uh, you have the most criminal experience, maybe others will chime in. What I think is interesting is what would you charge the Reverend Mother Gaius Moyham with for the gom jobber and the, um, the box, right, where she's threatening, she's got this needle, she basically will tell Paul that she'll kill him if he takes her, her his hand out of the box, which he thinks is being tortured and basically burnt to a crisp, what is the appropriate legal charge for what she's doing there? It could be just, we call it threats of violence here in Minnesota. Yeah. Anytime you make a threat like that, it's a felony if you can back it up and they're actually terrified, the person. It used to be called terroristic threats, but oh. after 9-11, the legislature's like, well, that's no good anymore. But the person has to be terrified or it could even be like a second degree assault with a deadly weapon. You know, I mean, okay. that home bar is poison at his neck. It's no different than, you know, you point a loaded gun at some someone, it's second degree assault. Okay. So, and there'd be a ton of things, even though in her defense too, it's a necessity deal. She needs to find out if he's a quick <laughs> Technically, she ordered Lady Jessica to have a daughter. So it's like Paul doesn't even exist. He doesn't have any rights. That's right. Yeah, we really don't care about the boy children. And Let's there's get a religious exception for all this, I'm guessing, because the Benny Jesuit have their own weird breeding policy and religion and all that stuff. Who owns the genes of Paul at that point? Ooh, that's true. That, that's one of the things that I thought was so weird about that scene is you talked about kind of sexism in this movie. There's a really, I don't even think it's implied. It's kind of stated, you know, none of our, what did they say? Women. Female, um, people could withstand the pain or whatever. Yes. I mean, yeah. Hearing that with today's ears, I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> you know? 
No, that and the whole idea, and again, they they touch touch on it briefly, but that again is one of the sexism issues I have with the Dune books. But again, Frank Herbert makes up for a lot of that with Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, books five and six in the series, because that's focused solely on the Bene Gesserit. And basically they're the only ones who have their shit together at the end of things and they're holding everything together. Well, then so the I can other, kind of forgive them. And the other power that they're fighting against is women too. The fish yes, speakers that's come true. back are all women. So it does Honor take them a while to get there. But yeah. But yes, but that's the whole idea of the Quizaz Hatterich is he can do everything the female Bene Gesserit can do. Plus, he can go to this other part where the women are too afraid to go to. So again, this is where it's very hard for me sometimes to love my classic sci-fi because there are parts of it where I do just cringe and I'm like, oh, God. So yeah, so that is very sexist, that part there. Um, well, that, well, that also, by the way, Lady Jessica, probably that'd be some sort of derelict parenting sort of charge against her knowing what the Reverend Mother may possibly kill her son. <laughs> yeah, especially if he's still a minor. It's like, Yes. Seriously, how how is your religious cult okay? Yeah, and it's like you don't get to do that. Even though it does seem like it's an okay religious cult, because that Benny Jesuit are they're everywhere and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think that they all kind of turn to the weird, you know, anything that they can get away with if they try and claim some religious exception. And he's technically not harmed when it gets over. Yeah. I mean, he would have been killed had he pulled his hand out of the box, but <laughs> you know, it twists and butts where candy's in nuts. Yeah, yeah, but he, he still hesitates to pull his hand out when it's over because he he thinks he's going to have a stump. Yeah, at that point. So there's emotional trauma. Yes, but but on that, uh, okay. There's the weird sexism stuff. That's it's just weird. I I don't. When was this written? Did he write this in the sixties? I think. Oh yeah, I think fifties or sixties. Yeah. Okay. So that that explains Baron Harkonnen being yeah, Caligula, they, you know. Yes. And, yeah. And, and so there's the weird acne stuff, but then there's the like what he does to the 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 attractive young man who you know rips out his heart plugs, and it's just like he's gross, and. It's just, you can have an elimination of bias CLE on the treatment of people who could be gay. In yeah. the, in and in the book, book, he actually is gay. And that, yeah. again, is another problem where they basically make the villain, part of his villainy is that he's gay. So yes, again, definitely a problem there. Oh, yeah. Nobody else is necessarily except for the one is the worst of the worst. And that's yeah. how they make them out to be. Yeah, I know it's tough. Again, it's so hard, but again, and not that that stuff is all wrong, but oh my God, there's so much else in those books that is so freaking good. And it talks about one issue that we had talked about briefly. Of course, one of Frank Herbert's right was, or interest was ecology and how the actual topography of where you live and um, the ecology, what you can grow and how that ties into the economy and politics and religion. And basically trying to address all of this is what makes the books so amazing. Um, and in fact, again, what makes so much of that aside from the women issue issues and LGBTQ issues so relevant to today because one thing that really comes up and is sort of touched on in the movie but not as much um, as it is in the books is water. I mean water is a obviously a very scarce and incredibly precious um, commodity. It basically is in the books they make clear that it really is money in some ways um, and so the whole you know water laws and how they 
they have, and they don't, again, touch on this much in the movie, but how they deal with water rights is something that's so timely to right now, because I know, especially out west, um, they're running short on water and kind of some of the water law that's been used for centuries, I think, is causing problems now, right? Take it, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting Chris on the spot. One of the things that was really strange, you know, my firm does a lot of water law. I'm not a water lawyer, but we have the riparian rights. You know, riparian rights are basically, hey, this stream runs through my property and I can, you know, divert a reasonable amount, not divert, but I can use a reasonable amount of this stream or waterway for my own purposes to benefit my land. And that transfers owner to owner to owner. Um, and then we have appropriative water rights where you're literally diverting water somewhere else. And then overlying that is kind of this thing that's becoming very controversial in California is groundwater rights because they they don't necessarily you know an aquifer doesn't obey your property lines right and and you can't you know it, it's not as easy to measure at all times as other types of water and so we have this kind of you know what what's in the aquifer who who controls the 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 groundwater here takes it a next step and i'm not sure that there's a body of law that deals with this yet they're literally taking the water out of the air they're they're farming humidity, yeah, which is really strange. And it kind of makes me wonder if this is the future of California. At some point, are we oh. just going to be saying, hey, we need to dehumidify the air so we can get some water for people to drink and grow crops and whatnot? Wow. Well, and what's interesting, and this is a challenge that we're having out West and kind again, the challenge they address in the book, and I don't know if they, I can't remember if they say this in the movie or not, but again, it's the individual's rights to water versus a collective, like the communal or society right to water. And obviously, you know, in the US, we have that tension with the Fremen. It is very much about the collective water. They uh, talk about those, like the reservoirs of water. They have talked about the Fremen, even if they are dying, they will not take a sip of that water because that water belongs to the collective. And this vision they have, thanks to Leah Keynes, Keynes, Keynes. Um, so that's kind of a different approach there too. And for them, water is a matter of life or death. Obviously, they touch on that briefly with the still suits, um, which again is another issue that I know I've seen talk about in California. At some point, you know, the Fremen have figured out how to purify the body's um, fluids, including, you know, bowel movements and urine. And I know I've seen talk about you know, reclaiming water and plants that can reclaim water and clean it, sewer water even, but that that's going to be a big leap for people to get to the point where they'd be willing to have that water piped into their homes. Right. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing that really struck me kind of building off of this idea of water rights, you know, it, it, the federal law has something called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, I think it is, which basically says, hey, if you're a federal agency, before you take an action, you need to do an environmental impact report to think about the consequences of your action. California has something called CEQA. California, I think it's Environmental Quality Act. Very similar. You need an environmental impact report. Um, here, think about what Paul, which I always think it's weird that their savior is named Paul. Everybody else has these really extravagant names. He's Paul. Um, but at any rate, Paul Etienne just makes it right. He's the head of the government. He has just used these worms to his like great military advantage. They live in the desert <laughs> and all of a sudden he makes it rain crazy rain. And, and I'm sitting there going, are you killing your worms and your spice and everything else? And there's, where's the environmental impact study? 
That's actually a really good point because that probably was a point that bothered me the most because that's where they didn't divert from the plot of the book for like, you know, artistic license. That not only completely changes the end of the of the Dune book, it also basically addresses a massive issue that builds throughout books three and four, really, uh, Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune. But yeah, you're exactly right. Literally by creating that massive flood, turning it into Caladan overnight, he just destroyed all of the spice in the universe. So <laughs> that is the worst ending. <laughs> and that that's also assumes that people didn't read the books or understand because the Dune miniseries, plural, because they get into Children of Dune. They don't oh, do yeah. God, God Emperor, but they talk about that that you know, rains now falls on Dune. That you can see clouds in the sky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, like with the recent discoveries on Mars, like we we picked a good spot to land. With like, hey, this used to be either a big lake or or an ocean, so it's a good place to look for uh, fossils. Well, that entire planet is it, it, it's not all. I mean, like yeah, it's flat, but it, there are different depths to it. What's going to turn into an ocean? Is the castle going to be underwater? Is it going to Ooh. look like one of the towns that that we, you know, sank when we built dams? You know, again, 1950. Yeah. Off, yeah. Uh, Eisenhower with like, yeah, we're going to build the dam. Everyone's got to move now. And <laughs> well, I don't have a problem with that because we need water reservoirs here in California. We don't take out cities to do it. It's like uh, Atlantis. Yeah, we, we do have lots of space where we could, but that's a weird ending. I mean, then, and there's the well, comment when they're looking at the underground re- reservoir with, we'll change the surface of the planet. Mm-hmm. So the Fremen do have a goal for like a, an ocean. Yes. They, they seem down with that idea of having a place where water would be on the surface. And perhaps they could, you know, this is full on terraforming, how do you figure out the environmentally smart way to make the planet habitable for humans and not kill the worms and the entire ecosystem that's on the planet? This is why you need to read Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that takes thought. Like, yes. You can't just cowboy up and like, we're on it. Well, and Maybe. again the implications that it has for the greater economic and political world too. I mean, this is, I will say again, aside from his shortcomings culturally from his time, this is the sort of stuff he's thought through. And so, yeah, out of all the changes in the movie that annoyed me, the sound tool and all that, that ending was the one that actually bothered me because it just completely, I'm like, you've missed the entire point of Dune. Plus how the heck can Paul, I mean, yes, he can like kind of see the future. He can see within himself all the way back to Agamemnon. Like it is cool. They go back to the Greeks um, for their ancestors. Yeah. The being able to make it rain is a whole nother level of Messiah. That's kind of crazy. In the books, books, it is like you're describing Josh. It's slow and incremental. They, They take, they start using that water. They start planting a few greens in specific areas. They maintain the worms can be in a certain desert, all that stuff. But I think making this movie, it looked like, because everyone I know that watches it just is about dead at the end of watch. I'm sure David Lynch is the end. He's like, oh man. So they don't really do anything. He's like, just make it rain and just roll credits. Just, we'll do that. Here's my question, you know, because we get kind of this leadership decision just making it rain. And anyone that's, you know, my wife's from Vegas. If it rains just a little bit in Vegas, all of a sudden you get massive flooding. And I assume yes. it's the same thing there. You know, the thing that really kind of 
<laughs> bothered me about the, this ending is we've got this massive torrential downpour and there's just no forethought. It's just like, <laughs> and, and it made me wonder, you know, they talk about the spice being, it's a drug basically, right? Yes. It's a drug. Is he using it recreationally? <laughs> I mean, is, is, is this like, is they he do. a compromised <laughs> leader? That first time when Jessica turns the water, so she drinks that water of life, it's a poison, so it's so full of spice, and then she actually puts it back in and it turns it into basically like psilocybin for the rest of the tribe, and they just have a massive orgy yeah. right after that. So the Fremen do that quite a bit. Yes. So, so the idea of one's mom starting an orgy is horrific on so many levels. <laughs> no. No, no. The other part, it's you think of the final battle, they use atomic weapons. Yeah, and, oh, that's a good issue. So you you have a radiated unless that you could do low yield nuclear weapons, but these are people who aren't using computers, so God knows how tactical yeah. it was. Because you can you can make a low low meal yield nuke. Yeah. I don't know if they did that. So because you see a nice big green flash. So if that's all irradiated and then it rains, you're all screwed. <laughs> Yeah. Seriously and that, screwed. That brings up a legal point that they don't yes. have in the movie, but in the books they bring it up. Each one of the great houses, what keeps them as a great house is they all have atomics. Family they atomics, have, they, they call them. Saying that if any one family were to use it against another planet or another family, all the rest of the Imperium, Emperor and all the rest of the families would turn on them. So it's a whole legal argument where he said, I'm just using it on this shield wall, not on a person. So I'm not breaking any rules. The land's rad and stuff like that will come down on him. Yep. So yeah, was it technicality? Yeah. That, that, well, that's a nice spin on mutually assured destruction. Exactly. Yeah. And that is the whole idea of the family right. atomics. And that's why nobody yeah. uses them. Um, but yeah, that, and I will say that's what, I mean, in the books, both of the battle scenes are kind of short, but the first one is basically, it's a slaughterhouse. You can't really yep. even call it a battle. Um, but the second one, again, the movie changed it and they wouldn't have been able to handle it visually. But in the book, the final battle scene there is freaking awesome. And it does involve worms and atomics and a massive storm. And it's fantastic. So I will be curious to see, um, I guess, yeah, that would definitely have to be in the second Oh yeah, I would think, but I will be curious to see how they do that because um, it is quite dramatic in the books. So, one one other legal issue that I I kept thinking about, I don't think it truly is, is doing a derivative work of the Star Wars series. No, and that's the whole point. Frank Herbert wrote it, and so when he Fire. saw Star Wars, he actually said they basically ripped off Dune. Dune had all been written before Star Wars. Right. And, and what, what was interesting is just watching kind of, you know, in, in trademarks, we have the idea of trade dress. Yeah. Like things that look like things. And being a big Star Wars fan, I saw so many things in the Dune movie that I was like, oh, that kind of looks like Hammerhead. Yeah. Oh, that, you know, may, may the hand of God be with you. You know, may the force be, there were so many of those things. I was like, wow, this really calls back to Star Wars. They really did think they were making Star Wars for adults. I will say, and again, the movie, you're right. That obviously did come after Star Wars. So to the extent David Lynch is inspired by Star Wars, I can't comment on that. But there is the books actually, um, actually said, what was it? Herbert complained that Lucas stole from him and said, I'm going to try very hard not to sue, he told an Oregon paper back in the 70s, before adding that he found the first Star Wars uh, film boring. But anyway, Nerdist even has a line or a web 
page of all the similarities um, and all the things that basically uh, Star Wars took from Dune. Although I've also heard said that Star Wars also took from my other, my literally my first sci-fi love, which are the John Carter Man of Mars series too. Mm -hmm. So, and what they always say, you know, what's theft and what's kind of, yeah. um, what's derivative, you know, and what's just an homage. And it's, that's always a hard thing with art, but um, yeah, the whole desert planet kind of being the base idea. <laughs> it does seem like a pretty big ripoff of Dune. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why they go to an ice planet and empire. So yes, that's yeah. true. But uh, yeah. go ahead, Josh. So one other issue that kind of sneaks in, and so there's the weapons designer the guy with the eyebrows who looks like he has herpes. Oh, Thufer. Yes. So who we we he's captured and he <gasps> said he has a poison. Yes. And he has to get the antidote from milking a cat. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then we never see him again. So I want to talk about the horror of Milton a cat. You can't, you can't torture an animal. And seeing that, that cute little kitty in this little harness, does it ever get to leave the harness? Or is it well, somewhere like in the harness? And if you look closely, it's not just a cat. He's got a mouse taped to the side of that cat for some reason. <laughs> I mean, just for the fear of the mouse? I don't know what the point of that is. I, I don't know why they taped the mouse to the side He's of the cat. He's going to torture at every level. Yeah. Well, that made me think of when they talked about milking the cat, I say thought of Ben Stiller and meet, meet the, the parents, Fockers. right? Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, meet the Fockers when he's like, you know, you can milk anything with nipples or something. He's like, I've got a, a cat. Because in the books, Stufer, yeah, they do, they administer a poison to him and they give him the antidote every day. But it's not this, he needs to milk a cat deal. None of that. That's where David Lynch is like, this is already a weird, crazy, trippy book. I'm going to take it up a notch. That, that yeah, is that David is, Lynch. But you're saying it's pointless and just grotesque to show. And was it yes. a hairless or shaved? There's something wrong with that cat in the first place. And then I really actually tried to blank out on that whole scene. I, someone just wanted to say, I bet you I can make Sting hold a cat to take to a mouse <laughs> in a deal. And they're like, you're never going to win that bet. He goes, bet me 50 bucks. Bet me 50 bucks. Here, Sting hold that thing. With the best line ever, he says, all I see is Natrades that I want to kill when he looks at Hoover. <laughs> and, and I guess it gets into like an ethical issue of, you know, if it truly is the antidote, you know, we, we, yeah. Can we use animals to our own purposes to the point that they're uncomfortable? Because we do that all the time. That's true. You know, we yeah. do that all the time right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, and monkeys and things like that. We, we're in the business of using animals to try to help ourselves at, at their sometimes very severe discomfort. Yeah, because well, it gets to the point of insulin, right? I mean, now it's it's synthesized or whatever, but for the longest time, I mean, it's pigs. It's just pig insulin to raise pigs to take the insulin out of them to give to humans. You know, I mean, it's that same deal. Like, you'll die unless you take this whatever insulin is out of pigs, you know? Or I'm kind of, David Lynch could do something with this. I didn't know this, but um, Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin, of course, big dairy school, they literally have cows that have like, a hole in their side and you can actually reach in and feel around and literally kids on field trips my kids have not done this thank god can actually reach inside the cow and i have seen like animal rights activists go this is 
grotesque and humane. Okay, and I'm Wisconsin like, yeah, I a lot of weird stuff part. going on with all the <laughs> all the cannibalism in Wisconsin and everything else. Now they're making cows with holes in it. I know the river isn't far from me. Like Minneapolis is, we're about 14 miles from Wisconsin, but I think I am gonna go buy a gun tonight and just sit out there, just watch and see You're if they build a wall on that border. Yeah, that will be justifiable. So I, I went to UC Davis for undergrad, which is in Aggie school. It's, okay. They, we did have the cow with the, you could see the side. Yeah. And so it's cows alive and it's like, you know, clear plastic. So you could look at the cow yeah. as, as the cow lives. I never did that because that's not my idea of a fun Friday no. night. But there was no feel the inside of the cow. Oh yeah. It's full on. You can put your hand in this. It's full on Baron Harkonnen now that I'm thinking about it. It is really Ooh. gross. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, see? All right. Well, on that unpleasant note, um, I will wrap up because we've been talking a long time and I appreciate you guys doing this. Um, I will say I do hope that, um, oh, I hope that the new movie is good and I'm going to have to let go of the fact that it can't be completely true to the source materials. But I do have to say the 80s, I thought one of the things that kind of both of these 80s movies had in common is one on the gorgeous elaborate sets right lots of gold and kind of art deco but then also like they really tried to go the other way with like gross out scenes like the spider or baron harkonnen so and i don't i guess as an artistic choice to do like the beautiful and the ugly but i hope that we don't have to have that um kind of i do not like that sort of 80s approach to that stuff and that really gruesome stuff but i am very excited for the new dune movie i don't think i'll get time to watch the dune sci-fi series but i have been meaning to watch that documentary I saw the, that. did you the jadorski jarawaska however you say his name yeah who tried he had to a make great it. idea but i i can't imagine what his budget would have been i mean it was a lot this does does anyone know is because the cast i mean as much as and I, I think it's pretty clear i i did not really like dune yeah um <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious but i didn't really like it I think this is a man who likes flash gordon <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> Our, are they bringing back because they had an impressive cast? I mean, you got yeah. Virginia Madsen, you got yeah. you know Patrick, Captain, Stewart. Uh, Patrick Stewart, you got you just got so many like people who would be A or A minus list actors right now. Yes, I will they have A list actors. Yeah, for from this what dude. it looks from what it looks like, because Patrick Stewart is an amazing Gertie Halleck. Yeah, Josh Brolin looks like from all the clips I've seen looks amazing. Jason Momoa as Duncan. Oscar Isaac as Leto, Timothy Chalamet, Jessica Ferguson. I mean, all of them. It looks well, pretty- Zendaya plays Chani, which I'm super oh, excited yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and I will say, yeah, I guess, Chris, you're not online as much as I am. There is a whole subset of the internet that has kind of gone crazy over Silver Daddy Oscar Isaac because as Duke Leto and he's got this salt and pepper beard and actually the rest and the bummer is is we know he doesn't last long right so i'm hoping we get enough of him because i'm like i just want to see him and that beard over and over and over (laughs) um but so it is an amazing cast i don't know who the director is or the writers um i haven't actually checked that out i know i just read something they are trying to keep it as true to the source materials they can but i mean anytime you go from a book to the big screen it's just it's hard 
you know. Well, and especially with a book this complicated and this much, you know, I was thinking about when they talk about writing and how they always say with writing, don't tell show, right? So they don't want lots of exposition or people just thinking thoughts in their head. Dune is all of that. And especially like some of the books like God Emperor Dune, I always compare kind of to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrug, where there's just a lot of lengthy monologues on things. Oh, De Denise or Dennis uh, Villeneuve, he's a very mm -hmm. famous director. He's the director of this. Um, so again, it is very high caliber stuff, but it is, it is just so challenging because the, um, it is again, very intellectual, a lot of heft, a lot of thought about religion um, and ecology and politics. Uh, I would recommend to anyone, even with the qualifications that we've talked about with the LGBTQ and the women issues. I mean, I love the Dune series, all six of them so so much i think they are fantastic so i would highly recommend them to um anyone who has an interest in reading sci-fi at all because i do just think they're awesome and so especially if you've seen the movie to read the book because my wife especially she hated that movie beyond belief but she finally just read the book and goes all right the book isn't that bad i'm like well, yeah the book is freaking brilliant yeah it did win the hugo award i think i'm I pretty think sure so yeah um yeah and again having come to that i basically i read Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter, Man of Mars series. And then my next sci-fi series was uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. And then I went right from him to Robert Heinlein, which we have never even touched on Robert Heinlein. He's a whole trip um, in and of himself uh, who, uh, yeah. So anyway, so I've kind of had like, I very weird um, kind of combination of books here, but. And I'm pretty sure I read Foundation before I read Dune. Oh, that's right. Which by the way, Foundation is on Apple TV. Yeah. And I keep thinking I should watch it because I liked Foundation. That's a whole Isaac Asimov thing. I forgot I read him too. But yeah, maybe we'll have to talk about that at some point. But anyway, see, these are ones, some of the topics Josh and I talk about, I run out of things to say pretty early on, but I can talk about Dune all night. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't. So thank you so much, Chris. I will say too, this actually Chris gave me a call about a kind of a work thing. Um, what just a few weeks ago, when we got talking about this. So I did not know back in law school that uh, we had this kind of geek connection. So I'm glad Chris and I reconnected on this. Wyatt, I apologize to Josh and everybody else in my life that I haven't mentioned you too. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell my daughter about you very soon. I'm sure she'll be very excited to find out she has a second I'll uncle. explain why she just kicked me in the knees when I tried to hug her and said stranger danger and ran away. So Josh, everybody knows about you in my life, of course. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my kids call you Uncle Josh just from reading the book. It's weird that Jess has never mentioned me. <laughs> it's a cool one. Is That's right. Sad? Why can't you be like him? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you guys all so much. I cannot wait. I'm actually going to, if I get all my chores done, read a bit of Heretics of Dune tonight. And I'm well, sure. down. Your time management, you'll be. <laughs> yep. I mean, with this this started right on time. I see. This is why I don't invite Wyatt to things. I just remembered why I don't tell anyone about him. He likes to point out some of my less perfect sides. Um, so, yeah, that's right. I forgot why I go years in between talking to Wyatt. Um, <laughs> So yes, I'm going to fit in time for reading Heretics of Dune tonight. And then in 12 days, it is the new Dune with Silver Daddy, Oscar Isaac. So <laughs> I am beyond excited. So, But thank you guys so much. This was a ton of fun. And this is my official throwback Legal Geeks uh, podcast episode. Yeah, we've been promising Dune for a long time. So I know. It's nice to actually have a reason to get into it. Uh, I, I will dig into it. I've the last few weeks have been insane with the death in the family and getting ready for the service and, and everything. 
uh, but I did start the book before all of that began. And I, I look forward to, I don't know if I'll pull it off in 12 days, but I'll, I'll make a co old college try for it. But with that, uh, definitely want to see more of, uh, of Jess versus Wyatt. Uh, <laughs> because, <isn't... laughs> no. Uh, Wyatt, if your kids want to go to Comic-Con, we could make that happen. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, Chris, you too. So we got, That's got right. Chris, back. you're in California. We could make that happen for sure. We're, we'll be at Denver. So if you, if you want to go, we can, that's a shorter flight for you. <laughs> but uh, uh, again, thank you all for your time. Uh, Chris, I'll be sure to look you up when I go through Sacramento. And uh, everyone, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and the spice must flow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.